In those ancient days, when the good destinies had been decreed, and after On and Enlil had set up the divine rules of heaven and earth, the Lord of Broad Wisdom, Enki, the Master of Destinies, founded dwelling places. He took in his hand waters to encourage and create good seed. He laid out side by side the Tigris and the Euphrates, and caused them to bring water from the mountains. He scoured out the smaller streams and positioned the other watercourses. Enki made spacious sheepfolds and cattle pens, and provided shepherds and herdsmen. He provided cities and settlements throughout the earth, and made the black-headed people multiply. He provided them with a king as shepherd, elevating him to sovereignty over them. The king rose as the daylight over the foreign countries. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest, Annika. And we're listening to The Debate Between Bird and Fish, as usual, from the ETCSL translation. This is a Sumerian debate from a genre of Sumerian literature where two sides argue to prove that they're more useful to humans. Just now, we heard a brief history of the state in order. People living by major rivers and using canals to combine them with smaller waterways enabled agriculture and water engineering in the alluvium. This, combined with animal herding, enabled the establishment of large settlements and, over time, the growth of political institutions, like the king mentioned in this text. The story continues, describing the landscape at the dawn of time. Enki knit together the marshlands, making young and old reeds grow there. He made birds and fish live in the pools and lagoons, placed them in charge of this abundance of the gods. He filled the reed beds and marshes with fish and birds, indicated to them their positions, and instructed them in their divine rules. Then fish laid its eggs in the lagoons. Bird built its nest in a gap in the reed beds. But bird frightened the fish of the lagoons. Fish took up a stand and cried out. Grandiosely, it initiated hostilities. It roused the street by quarreling in an overbearing manner. Fish addressed bird murderously. Croaking, squawking, forever gobbling away greedily while your heart is dripping with evil. The farmer's sons lay lines and nets for you in the furrows. The gardener sets up nets against you in gardens and orchards. He cannot rest his arm from firing his sling. He cannot sit down because of you. You cause damage in the vegetable plots. You're a nuisance. In the damp parts of fields, there are your unpleasing footprints. Bird, you are shameless. You fill the courtyard with your droppings. By your noise, the palace is disturbed. Your din drives people away. They bring you into the fattening shed. They let you moo like cattle, bleat like sheep. They pour out cool water in jugs for you. They drag you away for the daily sacrifice. The fowler brings you with bound wings. They tie up your wings and beak. Your squawking is to no profit. What are you flapping about? With your ugly voice, you frighten the night. No one can sleep soundly. Bird, get out of the marshes. Get this noise of yours off my back. Go out of here into a hole on the rubbish heap. That suits you. Thus Fish insulted Bird on that day. So Fish accuses Bird of messing with agriculture, creating a hassle for the farmers who need to keep the birds away from their fields. It also references the fact that birds were fattened for sacrifice, just as livestock are. So essentially, Fish is insulting Bird by comparing it to livestock. But Bird, with multicolored plumage and multicolored face, was convinced of its own beauty and did not take to heart the insults Fish had cast at it. As if it was a nursemaid singing a lullaby, it paid no attention to the speech, despite the ugly words that were being uttered. So Bird talks himself up. He emphasizes his proximity to domestic produce, and he doesn't really disagree with Fish regarding domestication. This text also mentions King Shulgi of Ur, who reigned in the 21st century BCE, during the Third Dynasty of Ur period. How has your heart become so arrogant, while you yourself are so lowly? 
Your mouth is flabby, but although your mouth goes all the way around, you cannot see behind you. You are bereft of hips, also of arms, hands, and feet. Try bending your neck to your feet. Your smell is awful. You make people throw up. They sneer at you. No trough would hold the kind of prepared food you eat. He who has carried you dare not let his hand touch his skin. In the great marshes and the wide lagoons, I am your persecuting demon. You cannot eat the sweet plants there, as my voice harasses you. You cannot travel with confidence in the river, as my storm cloud covers you. As you slip through the reed beds, you are always beneath my eyes. Some of your little ones are destined to be my daily offering. You give them to me to allay my hunger. Some of your big ones are just as certainly destined for my banqueting hall in the mud. I am the beautiful and clever bird. Fine artistry went into my adornment, but no skill has been expended on your holy shaping. Strutting about in the royal palace is my glory. My warbling is considered a decoration in the courtyard. The sound I produce in all its sweetness is a delight for the person of Shulgi, son of Enlil. Fruits and produce of gardens and orchards are the enormous daily offerings due to me. Groats, flour, malt, hold barley, and emmer are sweet things to my mouth. How do you not recognize my superiority from this? Bow your neck to the ground. Thus, bird insulted fish on that occasion. That was so fun. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> They're so savage. So fish refers to Azina, also known as Ashnan, a goddess of grain. This is the same goddess mentioned in the sheep versus grain text. The implication is that fish is just as important a food source as grain, which would have been true. Fish was the main source of protein for Sumerians. Again, fish replied to bird. You clatter away in your ignorance with never any reflection. Bird, you have not examined the question of my greatness. You have not taken due account of my nature. You could not understand my weakness and my strength. Yet you spoke inflammatory words. Once you have really looked into my achievements, you will be greatly humbled. Your speech contains grave errors. You have not given it due consideration. I am fish. I am responsibly charged with providing abundance for the pure shrines. To the august platform of the great offerings of the gods, I go proudly with head raised high. Just like Azina, I am here to satisfy the hunger of the land. I am her helper. Therefore, people pay attention to me, and they keep their eyes upon me. As at the harvest festival, they rejoice over me and take care of me. Bird, whatever great deeds you may have achieved, I will teach you their pretentiousness. I shall hand back to you in your turn your haughtiness and mendacious speech. And of course, when Fish talks about going proudly to the great offerings of the gods, he's referring to offerings of fish to the gods of the temple. We have fish kettles in some of the earliest levels of the temple at Eridu. So we'll see what Fish does. But first, most of this podcast will be focused on the historical developments in the lowlands of the southern Mesopotamian Delta between modern Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. We haven't covered it yet because, as I'll explain, we don't have any evidence for habitation here until about 6500 BCE. We'll look at the geography of this region as the Persian Gulf fills with seawater and people begin to settle near the new coast up to the end of the Ubaid I period, around 5300 BCE. Then we're going to finish up by introducing the city of Eridu, starting in the 5000s BCE. Previously, episodes 7 through 9 covered the pottery, Neolithic, and northern Mesopotamia, beginning with the widespread adoption of pottery and ending with the northern Ubaid period in the late 5000s BCE. Episode 10 covered the first irrigation in central Mesopotamia, at Samara sites like Tel Es Sawan and Chogamami, as well as southwestern Iran up to about 4600 BCE. So episodes 11 through 14 will cover the Ubaid period, first in southern Mesopotamia, then the Persian Gulf, then the north. The earliest archaeological culture here in the south is called the Ubaid culture, after the small village of Al-Ubaid near Ur. Hence the period between 6500 and 4200 BCE and the southern delta is called the Ubaid period. 
For some time, peaking in the early 4000s BCE, the South interacted more vigorously with nearby cultures, creating a trans-regional material tradition also called Ubaid culture, which we'll cover in episodes 13 and 14. Properly, Ubaid culture refers to a particular kind of painted pottery, a certain architectural style, and certain kinds of clay tools. Since the Delta had no native sources of stone or metal, Southerners had to make all their tools and build all their buildings out of either reeds or clay. Access to stone had been a central necessity for any group of people since time immemorial, because they had no better material to make tools. People knew how to fire clay before they adopted pottery. We have fired clay figurines from tens of thousands of years ago, but the development of ceramic technology during the pottery Neolithic allowed people to live away from natural sources of flint or chert. After all, the southern Mesopotamia Delta was a far more valuable natural resource, a wide, flat river plain dotted with seasonal wetlands, perfect for foragers and perfect for farmers. But first, let's back up to where we started episode 1, around 13,000 BCE, at the beginning of the Natufian period in Syro-Palestine. I'll go into more detail during the Persian Gulf episode, but essentially, Ice Age glaciers hadn't finished melting, so the sea level was lower. As a result, the entire area now covered by the Persian Gulf was dry land, one big valley about the size of Great Britain, with the Tigris and Euphrates feeding a prehistoric river flowing into the Indian Ocean at the modern Strait of Hormuz. As these rivers flowed downhill to a much lower sea level than today, they cut down through earlier geological layers to carve deep river valleys. This created isolated plateaus of flat land, which had escaped this erosion, surrounded by channels up to 40 meters deep. Since these plateaus stayed dry while the valleys flooded, scholars call these dry plateaus turtlebacks. When it rained, more and more of this plateau would wash into the river. Over time, this would erode away the edges of the plateau and fill the valley with that eroded soil. Large particles carried by fast upland currents would settle on the riverbed fairly quickly, but smaller particles would travel farther, ultimately deposited downstream when the river became too slow to carry them any farther. Over time, especially as sea level rose, the river deposited more and more soil onto the floors of these channels. As it built up vertically on the valley floor, it created entire ecosystems full of fine alluvial soil, relatively simple for farmers to work with. In spring, the snow in the mountains would melt and the lowlands would flood. As we'll talk about, especially in these earlier periods, much of the delta was a perennial wetland. But especially in the spring, these wetlands would swallow up huge areas of the delta plain. I mentioned turtlebacks, isolated plateaus which stayed dry when the lowlands flooded, it shouldn't surprise us that we see our earliest settlements on these high points so that people could prevent their oh, so that people could prevent all their stuff from getting washed away every year. Anyway, I mentioned that we started around 13,000 BCE. The last glacial period was over and the Antarctic ice sheet was melting, causing sea level to rise about 1 centimeter per year for the next 6,000 years. Between 12,000 and 6,500 BCE, sea level rose about 60 meters, filling the gulf with seawater. As we've talked about, the pre-pottery Neolithic B was a climatic optimum, about 2,000 years of stable, warm, wet weather, allowing early farmers to consolidate their gains and take risks experimenting with new farming methods. As we'll talk about, it likely rained enough to support mobile herding populations in areas which are now inhospitable desert. By the early 6,000s BCE, this advancing coastline began to approach southern Mesopotamia, advancing over dry ground at one kilometer per year in places. A rising water table turned an alluvial plain into a freshwater marsh. One of several reasons we may not have earlier settlements in this particular area is that this particular area may have been unremarkable highlands until the ocean rose to meet them and altered their geology into the freakishly productive habitat we'll describe. The late 6000s BCE saw the pre-pottery Neolithic B climatic optimum end with the 8.2 kilometer event. A glacial lake in modern Canada appears to have finished draining into the ocean around this time, dumping a bunch of cold, fresh water into the ocean. This disruption in thermohaline circulation precipitated a period of cooler and drier conditions around the hemisphere, the mean annual temperature in Europe dropped 1 degree Celsius, or 2 degrees Fahrenheit, and the wetlands in the southern delta shrank. This is when we see the oldest permanent settlements in the delta, not during the climatic optimum, when people could have lived anywhere relatively easily, but instead when the party ends and they have to make the best of a bad situation. 
In fact, as these wetlands were shrinking, we shouldn't be surprised to find Tel El Aweli on the edge of a massive natural basin, which would be full of life even as other places dried up. Sea level continued to rise during the mid-5000s BCE. The ocean advanced beyond the modern shoreline and started swallowing up areas of what is now southeastern Iraq. Ubayid villages like Eridu didn't start off as coastal settlements, but they didn't have much choice in the matter. By the late 5000s, the coast had found them instead. As we'll see, this may have enabled long-distance sea travel across the Gulf. The ocean continued to rise throughout the Ubayid period until about 4000 BCE. From this point onwards, the rivers carried a steady stream of sediment back into the Gulf, extending the coastline back into the ocean. So you probably don't need me to tell you that Mesopotamia is Greek for between the rivers, and that those rivers are the Euphrates in the west and the Tigris in the east. Both originate in the highlands of southeastern Anatolia and flow generally southwards in narrow river valleys cutting through the highland plains of northern Mesopotamia. Near Baghdad, as we'll talk about, they flow out of these valleys and onto a wide, flat river plain. Today, the two rivers meet near Basra and flow from there into the Persian Gulf. As we'll see, during these prehistoric periods, the two rivers interacted with each other a whole lot more. Sumerians knew the Euphrates by the name Bura-Nuna, since the name has no etymology in any known language and may be from an extinct language. Its sources include the Karasu, or West Euphrates, and the Murat River, or East Euphrates, the latter of which originates north of Lake Van near Mount Ararat. The entire system flows about 3,000 kilometers from its source to where it meets the Tigris. Two major tributaries flow southward to meet it in northern Syria, the smaller Balikh and the larger Khabur River system. We'll see lots of interesting stuff happen on this later Khabur River. Sumerians called the Tigris River Edigina, meaning swift water. It originates in Hazar Lake, and its tributaries include the Zab and Batman Rivers and it flows about 1,800 kilometers from its source to the Euphrates. At one point, its course takes it within six kilometers of the Murat River, meaning that these two river systems flow only a short walk apart in the Anatolian highlands before taking drastically different paths through the northern highland plains. As we talked about earlier in season one, these mountain valleys created perfect conditions for the earliest farmers to experiment with new techniques, leading to the domestication of much of the Neolithic package in this area. From here, these rivers flow south around the Jazeera, a term for the grassy plain between these two major river valleys which was first occupied during the Halaf period. As we talked about, it didn't rain enough in this region to support intensive agriculture, but these herders supported themselves by planting small amounts on riverbanks and lakesides, and by grazing their herds across a wide area of grassland. These areas could support small populations of herders spread out over large areas, but not large, dense agricultural settlements. So like I said, near Baghdad, the rivers flow out of their narrow river valleys and onto the wide, flat floodplain of central Mesopotamia. From this point onwards, with no geographical boundaries, people can dig channels to connect the river to an arbitrarily large area of nearby farmland. This is likely why we see the earliest irrigation here, including the canals dug from the Tigris River to the nearby Samara village of Tel Es Sawan. Today, the Tigris and Euphrates are two separate rivers, everywhere north of Basra, resulting from millennia of natural processes pushing their courses apart from each other. During this entire prehistoric period we'll be dealing with, however, throughout their path through the Solon Plain to the Gulf, these were not two separate rivers, but instead one big interconnected river system, with two main branches between 25 and 50 kilometers apart, and dozens of smaller branches, both natural and artificial, connecting plains, swamps, and seasonal floodplains. In other words, the entire thing is a single ecosystem, all navigable by boat, surrounded by water and aquatic creatures everywhere one went. Geologically, this lowland plain is divided into two parts, the central floodplains and the southern delta plain, corresponding to northern and southern Babylonia in later terms. In the 21st century BCE, the kings of Ur will style themselves kings of Sumer and Akkad, that is, of the Sumerian-speaking southern delta and the Akkadian-speaking central floodplain, giving us the proper name, Sumerian, which is ironically of Akkadian origin, for the language and culture unique to this delta plain in the 2000s BCE. These two episodes, and the vast majority of episodes going forward, will be about the southern delta, home to cities like Uruk, or Unug, Ur, Eridu, Nippur, Shurpak, and so on. However, as we're following the rivers down these courses, we should stop to take a look at this region of central Mesopotamia, or the land of Akkad, centered around modern Baghdad, Najaf, and Kut. 
Of course, the entire lowland plain would later be named Babylonia after the supremely famous central Mesopotamian city of Babylon. In the third millennium BCE, this area was dominated by the city of Kish. For a variety of reasons we'll discuss in later episodes, it wasn't as densely populated with cities as the south would be during the 2000s. In these central floodplains, most of the land lay above the level of the river, the way rivers usually work. When the rivers rise in the spring, they flood their banks and cover more land, but ground level is almost always higher than the riverbed. In other words, the rivers had eroded valleys downwards into the soil and carried that soil farther downriver. After the flood waters receded, people would plant crops along the riverbank. They didn't have to cultivate much land since they could travel along the river by boat and collect all the grain they'd planted earlier along its banks. Also, uncultivated floodplains would grow grass after the waters receded, creating perfect grazing land for herds of livestock. Over time, some of these rivers would inevitably change courses, flooding their banks and draining in a different direction, leaving an empty stretch of riverbed up to several kilometers wide. These traces can survive for millennia and serve as natural reservoirs for irrigation systems or merely as an oxbow lake or seasonal wadi for hunting and watering herds. We'll come back to central Mesopotamia. I mentioned Kish, but we'll also be back to visit Eshkuna and Tutub, Kutha and Tel Ukair, and so on. For the rest of these two episodes, though, we'll be focusing on the southern delta plain. This is southern Babylonia, or the land of Sumer, home of the Sumerian language. This is where writing was invented, along with countless other innovations we'll talk about in season two. Like I mentioned, this will be our home base for the rest of the podcast. Especially during the Ubaid period, with a warmer and wetter climate than the region experiences today, the south was characterized by lush marshland. Even as the climate began to dry up, it was still dotted by swamps and wetlands in addition to fields and irrigation ditches. Like I said, this entire plain is made up of soil deposited by the river as it gradually slows down, and the soil particles of varying sizes fall out of the current and settle down. The finest particles weighing the least travel the farthest before the river slows down enough to let them go. In other words, the river system connecting the plain was constantly transporting the two main ingredients for successful agriculture, good soil and fresh water. Also, like I said, rising sea levels elevated the groundwater, meaning that the entire plain was connected, not just by an above-ground river system, but also by a colossal underground aquifer just beneath the surface, which the Sumerians knew as the Abzu. Unlike in the central floodplain, the river here in the southern delta flows at a higher elevation than the nearby plain. This seems counterintuitive. Obviously, water always flows downward, so why would the riverbed be elevated above the dry land? Like I said, this plain is extremely flat, with less than a 1% gradient, resulting in a much slower rate of flow than in the highlands. As the water slows down, smaller and smaller particles of dirt fall out of the current, building up not only on the riverbed, but also along the banks, which builds the entire system up vertically over time, as more and more dirt gets deposited on top. This creates natural levees, areas of raised land, built up over time as the river deposits more and more sediment along its path. If the river maintains the same path for centuries, the entire system can stand between 2 and 4 meters over the nearby floodplain, with a triangular cross-section between 2 and 6 kilometers wide. That's a triangle up to 13 feet tall and up to 3.7 miles wide, with a river running along the levee's crest. In the spring, a combination of rain and melting snow upriver would cause the river to overflow these banks, spilling water down the slopes of the levee and onto the nearby plain, likely mixing with the existing wetlands fed by rain. As a result, much of the flat land near these levee systems would be underwater for a portion of the year, making it possible to travel long distances by boat. Like I said, this is why people built their settlements on turtlebacks, the uneroded plateaus above the level of the floods. These would become the upper towns of later cities. People in these villages could plant crops on the levee walls, graze herds in receding floodplains, and hunt and fish in nearby swamps and lakes. When the water breaks through the riverbanks as a result of annual floods and flows through the gap in the levee wall, that's called the, quote, flood season discharge display. These can fundamentally alter the local landscape, especially in the southern delta, where the river flows above the level of the plain. This water spilling down the levee walls is likely to form a new offshoot of the river if the gap doesn't silt up first. Whether that happens or not, though, it's certain to deposit lots of fresh water and fine silt down on the nearby plain. 
If farmers want to take advantage of this, they can dig irrigation ditches from this new gap in the riverbank down the slope of the levee wall to wherever their fields are. Like the original levees, these distributaries can build up over time. For example, the area around Unug is defined by a 5-kilometer-wide levee system, heading south-southwest until it dissipates into a series of distributaries flowing down into marshland. That's at that bird's foot delta that we'll talk about in a couple episodes. For now, we're still at the end of the Neolithic, or the Ubaid, 0 through 3 periods, between about 6500 and 5000 BCE or so. During this period, sea levels rose from 15 meters below current levels to just a few meters below, and that's in absolute terms, not counting the different coastline. Especially as sea level rose, the flow of fresh water out to the Gulf would be constrained, both by rising groundwater and by various geological features in the Eridu area, making seasonal flooding and marsh formation likely, even without the effects of tidal forcing. It's important to emphasize that there would have been wetlands across the entire lowland plain, not just the southern delta. They were important to subsistence everywhere for the same reasons. But again, we're focusing on the south today, where these wetlands and coastal marshes were a much more central feature of the landscape and the local economy. Obviously, they were a source of food, allowing locals to hunt, fish, trap, and gather edible plants. And endless amounts of mud and reeds would provide raw materials for construction, basket weaving, pottery, and so on. The trade-off, of course, was a complete lack of stone, metal, or useful timber, which all had to be imported from elsewhere. The fact that so much of the area was accessible by boat, especially during flood season, meant that transporting a boat's worth of goods was uniquely easy here in the south. The canal network's adjoining river systems not only watered the fields, but acted as a highway system connecting the entire region. Meanwhile, the north was forced to rely on overland transportation, especially before the domestication of the donkey or the invention of wheeled vehicles, which were likely developed from the pottery wheel after the end of the Ubaid period. If you wanted to transport more goods than you could carry, you had to make cattle carry your wares on their backs or make them drag the goods behind them on a sledge, neither of which is particularly conducive to large-scale trade in fragile goods like pottery. However, once foreign goods made it into this river network, they could be freely traded within it without much extra work since people were frequently traveling from town to town anyway. People living in the southern delta had access to not only the vast freshwater lakes and marshes in their immediate vicinity, but also, a little bit farther downstream, brackish coastal marshes and eventually the Persian Gulf itself. As I mentioned, fish were a massive part of their diet, likely their biggest source of protein. Fish bones offered in temples like at Eridu include both freshwater and saltwater fish, both likely caught with nets. We also have fish hooks from the Gulf. Besides fish, the wetlands were home to turtles, crabs, and shellfish like clams. They also hunted waterfowl like ducks and geese, and aquatic birds like herons, kingfishers, egrets, and gulls. Living near the region's main source of fresh water, these early farmers also had access to a wide range of mammals who came to drink water and graze on the grass growing in the receding floodplain. Besides their domestic livestock, we have bones from aurochs, water buffaloes, wild asses, boars, gazelles, otters, and squirrels. Edible sedge tubers would have also provided important plant nutrients to people otherwise largely reliant on domestic cereals. Like I said, clay and reeds were one of the only resources the wetlands could provide in basically infinite amounts. Without local access to flint or obsidian, they were forced to make most of their tools out of baked clay, including cutting and grinding tools, which were almost always made of stone elsewhere. Most prominent are a type of baked clay sickle, which was used to harvest cereals as well as reeds. They also made fishing net weights out of clay, where fishers in the Gulf carved notches into stone instead. Beside bricks and pottery, both of which were common across the region, southerners also used clay to make figurines, including both ophidian human figurines, and simple animal figurines, especially of cattle. We'll talk more about those Ophidian figurines next episode. They appear to have used their clay sickles to harvest reeds from extensive areas of marshland, traveling by boat, likely the same way they harvested grain, which we'll talk about in just a sec. They used reed bundles to build houses, plastered with mud, and boats, waterproof with bitumen. They almost certainly wove baskets and other wicker objects, but these have long since decayed. Reeds would have also provided one of the only sources of fuel for cooks and artisans, firing pottery, working with bitumen, etc., along with animal manure. 
So these Ubayid villagers likely started off with a form of flood recession agriculture, planting crops along the banks of rivers and lakes as floodwaters began to recede in the fresh soil deposited and watered by that flood. This didn't require much manual labor in the form of digging ditches since it relied on the natural rise and fall of the flood. Compared to later irrigated fields, this technique was extensive rather than intensive, that is, each household likely traveled by boat, sowing grain along a long distance of river, rather than planting a dense concentration of grain in one small area of land. When this grain was ready to be harvested, they would have retraced the same route, reaping and bundling it up as they went. As we'll talk about in the early Uruk episode, they may have left those bundles out to dry along the river, coming by later to pick them up. This practice would have allowed a single household or a small settlement to use a large area of river plain to grow grain rather than necessarily working the land right next to their house. Like I said, it was much less labor-intensive than later irrigation farming. There was no need to manually introduce water or nutrients, since the flood water delivered not only fresh water and soil, but also all kinds of organic material from the animals living in that water. All you'd need would be a boat of reeds, some baked clay sickles, a predictable annual flood, and a population small and dispersed enough to use these huge areas without coming into conflict with each other. Unfortunately, this kind of irrigation will eventually prove so successful that it will cause population to balloon to the extent that its continued practice will become impossible, as we'll see. For the record, flood recession agriculture is technically a form of irrigation using the environment itself to deliver water to the fields, or more accurately, bringing the fields to where the water is. But generally, when I talk about irrigation, I'm talking about digging ditches and canals in order to intentionally redirect the flow of water. Speaking of which, the canals we see during the Ubaid period are well within the capability of the kinds of small settlements characteristic of the period. In other words, there's nothing a village of a few dozen people couldn't accomplish on their own. At this point, they're likely just as interested in draining away excess water as they are in bringing water to places without it. Especially in the short term, draining an entire lake would free up a large area of farmland, which would likely fill up again the following year. In other words, it'll take another few millennia before they're digging elaborate irrigation networks to feed tens of thousands of people. For now, they're getting in the habit of exerting power over their environment and manipulating local resources for their benefit, which they will continue to do on a larger and larger scale. Over time, as we'll see, they'll become more and more reliant on intensive cereal agriculture, especially after a series of climatic shifts that happen after the end of the Ubayid period. Even during the earliest levels at Tel El Aweli, however, they were farming barley and einkorn, so we know cereals were important to their diet throughout the entire history of the South. Besides cereals like barley, emmer, and einkorn, we know they were farming legumes like lentils, chickpeas, and vetch, flax for oils and fibers, fruits like figs, apples, and apricots, nuts like almonds and pistachios, and vegetables like lettuce, onions, garlic, cucumbers, beets, and turnips, in addition to whatever herbs they could grow or gather. Several of these crops, especially flax, require lots of water, and increasingly intensive irrigation could support rich gardens and orchards. Like I said, the river runs above the level of the nearby plain, elevated by a sloping levee made entirely of the kind of fine alluvial soil that all this farming relies on, and because it's raised so far above groundwater, the water drains easily out of the soil. As you can imagine, this would be the most obvious place to put an intensive grain field, that is, a lot of grain planted in one place and watered intentionally, rather than planting grain along existing riverbanks like I described earlier. If you plant grain on the levee slope itself, just downhill from the river, you could dig a little hole in the riverbank and dig a ditch from that hole in the riverbank to your fields, not only will the water flow directly out of the river down to where you want it, but you can also drain off excess water by directing it farther downhill towards the plain below. So it's not clear when the first people arrived in the southern lowlands. Rising sea levels and millennia of alluvial deposits would have buried whatever archaeological remains they left behind under dozens of meters of dirt or seawater. Even before we have archaeological remains, it's likely that people passed through to hunt or fish, maybe using local organic materials to make tools which have since decayed. Our earliest evidence of permanent habitation comes from Tel El Aweli around 6500 BCE, although, as we'll see, there may be earlier levels below the water table. The late 6000s also coincided with the 8.2 Killier event. The South Asian monsoonal belt retreated to the south, 
which dried up the climate and shrank the freshwater wetlands. If people here had been living a more nomadic lifestyle before this point, this new climate regime may have forced them together into larger and more sedentary settlements. We can't know exactly where these first migrants came from. The Ubaid Zero material culture is similar to the Samara culture in central Mesopotamia, especially in terms of pottery and clay figurines. As we'll talk about, this is also where the tripartite architectural style originated. This may suggest an origin of the Ubaid culture near modern Baghdad. However, many of the same similarities also apply to nearby areas of southwestern Iran. Ali Koch and Choga Bonat were abandoned around the same time, maybe to move here. In any case, it's likely that all three regions shared many cultural traits and likely a fair amount of intermigration. Remember, back when the sea level was much lower and the Persian Gulf was a river running through a valley on dry land, the rivers in what is now southern Mesopotamia scoured valleys up to 40 meters deep, creating terraces between them. These terraces, which towered over the valley floor and remained dry even when the valley flooded, are called turtlebacks. Over time, as the sea rose to its current levels, these valleys filled back up with silt. Now that the river met the sea nearby, the water slowed down near the coast, and all the fine soil particles fell out of the current and became deposited on the valley floor. Eventually, turtlebacks that had been dozens of meters above the valley floor rose only slightly above wide, flat plains of deposited alluvial soil, which had over time filled in the valley. Still, though, these turtlebacks remained dry when the nearby plain flooded, which is likely why we see the earliest Ubaid settlements atop these turtlebacks. They could roam around the area for most of the year and retreat with their herds to the village itself during the flood. The first houses built on these turtlebacks were simple reed huts, their walls plastered with mud or bitumen. Since the reed tends to decay, and since the mud is often hard to tell from the ambient environmental mud, these early houses can be hard to find. People would continue making reed huts throughout historical times. In fact, you can still find people making buildings out of reed bundles in southern Iraq today. Eventually, Ubaid villagers would start building with sun-dried mud bricks, which are sturdier and more fire-resistant than reeds, but more labor-intensive to make. Like I said, from the very beginning, they were growing cereals and herding cattle, goats, and pigs. They probably weren't reliant on sheep or wool yet. These early sites are often hard to find. I mentioned why they might be buried under seawater or loads of river sediment, but there's another major difference from the north. In the north, where fields are watered by rain, the same village can remain in the same place for thousands of years, rebuilding houses and temples on top of earlier versions of the same buildings. Eventually, this creates a tell, or an artificial mound, made of many successive settlement layers at the same place. In the south, however, farming depended on the wetlands, and as we've been talking about, the wetlands will gradually shift over time with changes in sea level and alluvial deposition. Next up, let's look at the site of Tel El Aweli, which is spelled a variety of ways, near the later cities of Uruk and Larsa on the lower Euphrates Delta. Like I said, this is the earliest known site in the southern delta, with Ubaid zero levels going back to about 6500 BCE. However, since archaeologists dug down to the modern water table without ever reaching a level before human settlement, and since even these earliest levels already have extensive mud brick construction, it's likely that the site was occupied before 6500 BCE. Unfortunately, it would be difficult to excavate these earlier layers without extreme engineering projects, so we can only speculate what they were up to before this. Awaili was built on a turtleback overlooking one of these ancient valleys I talked about, carved during the Ice Age and eventually filled back up with silt. The village itself would have sat a few meters above the highest flood at this point, ensuring that they kept their homes and stores of grain dry all year. The nearby plain was home to marshes fed by an offshoot of the Tigris, which would flow back into the main branch of the Euphrates. The soil preserves evidence of edible sedge tubers and impressions of giant reeds, both central to the wetland economy I described. Some of the bricks used early in this period were cigar-shaped, like bricks from the Choga Mami transitional ware we talked about in episode 10. We have two similar tripartite houses from the earliest period, during the late 6000s BCE. One of them has a large central room, over 7 by 4 meters, with a total area around 345 square feet. Its roof rests on two rows of posts on a brick base, and its outer wall is supported by regular buttresses, similar to other monumental buildings we'll talk about later. The larger of these two buildings is 140 square meters, 
over twice as large as the biggest building from Sabi Abyad and occupied around the same time. In other words, even from the earliest occupation here at Tel el Aweli, they were building large public buildings with several of the features of later Mesopotamian temples. They grew a domestic type of six-road hold barley, which was tolerant enough of salty soil to grow in irrigated fields. Since its seed coat stayed on during processing, it would have had a longer shelf life but taken longer to process. Einkorn appears to be less important and may have been a weed in barley fields. So-called quote-unquote grill-shaped granaries may have been early storage facilities to store communal surplus. They likely used irrigation as early as the Ubaid I period in the early to mid-5000s BCE. It's not clear whether they used cattle to pull plows yet. In terms of material culture, especially pottery and mud bricks, the earliest settlement here is similar to Samara sites like Chogamami in central Mesopotamia, which was also experimenting with irrigation around this time. However, like I said, the same could be said about the lowlands of southwestern Iran about the same distance away. It's probably safest to see Ubaid culture as an emergent phenomenon born out of interregional interaction. They made Ophidian-style humanoid figurines from the very beginning. The earliest known example is missing its head, like the broken figurines from Sabi Abiyad, but it appears similar to figurines from Chogomami. We'll talk more about these figurines next episode, but they were unique to the southern Ubaid, and El Aweli kept making them throughout the period. During later periods, we see them more similar to figurines from Ur and Eridu. Bitumen, or tar, processed as an industrial material, is one of the few organic materials which doesn't decay over thousands of years. During the early 5000s BCE, Ubaid villagers appear to have imported it from sources in southwestern Iran. However, during the period we'll start talking about next episode, they appear to have switched to sources in central and northern Mesopotamia. They used bitumen to waterproof baskets, pottery, the holes of boats, and the insides of drain pipes. We'll talk about the late 5000s and 4000s BCE next episode. For now, it's enough to point out that this later period saw the introduction of the date palm to Tel El Aweli, possibly imported from the Persian Gulf, as well as the Euphrates poplar, or desert poplar, a tree which would provide wood, animal fodder, and fibers for rope, and which also originated outside the southern delta. Our next period, and the last one we'll look at today, is the Ubaid I period between about 6000 and 5300 BCE. The 8.2 Killier event ended fairly early in this period, bringing back warm and wet weather, which may have enabled dry farming at times. We certainly don't see any intensive irrigation farming yet. During this period, sea level rose 7 meters, or about 23 feet, advancing across the landscape until the ocean almost reached towns like Ur and Eridu. This raised the water table and reduced soil drainage, creating freshwater wetlands inland and brackish marshes near the coast. They're still growing barley, emmer, and einkorn, as well as flax, which, like I said, requires a lot of water. They build houses out of wattle and daub, overlaying sticks and branches with mud plaster, in addition to reed huts and mud brick buildings. This period is when contact with southwestern Iran peaks, with similar pottery and tools in both areas. During the Ubaid I, we see our first public buildings at certain regional centers in the south. We'll talk a lot more about these in a future episode. For now, suffice it to say that these appear to be larger, more elaborate versions of the same basic quote-unquote tripartite plan, which they use for domestic houses, suggesting that they may have been conceived of as households in some sense. The corners of these temples point to the cardinal directions, possibly to regulate temperature by letting air flow through windows that never pointed directly at the sun. As they were renovated and rebuilt over the years, the buildings always stayed in the same place, frequently shifting layout and sometimes flattening nearby domestic areas to expand. The fact that these communities worshipped in the same place continuously for thousands of years indicates remarkable cultural continuity, suggesting that the same building was important to the same settlement for the same reason over millennia. As a result of this remarkable continuity, the several overlaid layers of these temple complexes are often used to date their surrounding settlements. For example, as we'll talk about at Unug, the first complex tokens appear at level 17 at the local temple, and they invent written language during level 4. Over the next 3,000 years, these temples will become the political, economic, and religious centers of their respective communities during their transformation into Sumerian city-states. By the end of this process, the community and the prominent individuals will make offerings in the form of agricultural goods to the temple and its deity on certain holidays. 
The temple will host a feast to celebrate the holiday, but it will use the majority of those goods for its own purposes. Paying wages, feeding the workers working on the temple's land, various tasks relating to agricultural and industrial production, and so on. It's not clear how much of the system existed during the Ubaid, but deposits of aquatic birds and fish and painted pottery at temples like the one in Eridu suggest that, at the very least, the community was already dedicating food to the administration of the local public building. Enki, the later Sumerian patron god of Eridu, was a god of water, especially the massive fresh aquifer just underneath the plain, and all the creatures in the wetland, enabled by this high groundwater. These may represent dedications of these creatures to an earlier version of the same god. It's likely that these temples were already organizing labor projects in some sense, even if these offerings weren't directly used to feed these workers yet. Like I said, neither irrigation nor agriculture itself seems to have been particularly labor-intensive during this period, so there wasn't a pressing need for a powerful social authority to yoke together hundreds of manual workers. More on that later. The earliest houses at most sites in the Delta were simple reed huts, many of which were likely temporary shelters rather than houses, maybe set up by seasonal fishermen or by farmers sowing grain along stretches of the river, staying overnight and rowing back in the morning. However, like I said, even the earliest Ubaid zero levels at Tel El Oweli already had extensive mud brick architecture, suggesting that people were building not only permanent structures, but also unnecessarily large buildings, that is, monumental ones. Ubaid workers generally made their bricks in molds and dried them in the sun rather than in ovens, so they opted for shallow molds and relatively flat bricks which dried faster. As you can imagine, this worked best in late spring and summer when the weather is hottest and driest. Unbaked mud bricks aren't necessarily permanent in the same way stone bricks are. They fall apart after a couple decades, so they need to be periodically rebuilt. In fact, this is a major feature of how this whole temple thing works. The building has to be continuously rebuilt in the same place, usually with a similar layout, so you can keep doing all the same things you were doing in that building before it started falling apart. More relevantly, unbaked mud brick is the least bad building option in the southern delta. Reed is obviously flimsy and flammable. Stone and timber are prohibitively labor-intensive to import, and baked clay bricks are too labor-intensive to produce at scale, even if they would last much longer than unbaked bricks. Obviously, this whole process of making clay bricks is more efficient with a large organized team of workers, but it's not outside the capability of a smaller village. We've talked about so-called tripartite houses before. I mentioned them at Sabi Abiyat in episode 8, and at Tel Es-Sawan, Chogomami, and Chogomish in episode 10, all in the 6000s and early 5000s BCE, that is, at the same time as the origins of Ubaid culture in the south. The specific shape of building found in the southern delta appears to have originated in the Hamrin region of the upper Diala River in east-central Mesopotamia. This doesn't necessarily prove anything about migration, but it does show that this characteristically Ubaid style came about in a broader regional context. The style is called tripartite because it has three parts, one long central hall and two side rooms or sets of side rooms, usually symmetrical. From the outside, it can appear rectangular or T-shaped, but the overall plan is less important than the relationship between this central hall and the rest of the building. This central hall appears to have been used for communal activities like cooking and eating, and the side rooms may have been for storage or crafts or bedrooms for individual couples. Given anthropological parallels to societies on a similar scale, a house like this could easily house 20 people, several couples from several generations living under the same roof. As we've talked about, the adoption of this architectural style may have coincided with the adoption of new modes of social organizing centered on a larger extended family. After the collapse of the pre-pottery Neolithic B village, these extended families appear to have become the basic unit of society, and a settlement could comprise one or many. But in terms of marriage, inheritance, and the day-to-day -day work of subsistence, Ubaid society, among others, appears to have organized itself into multi-generational family units. We find both domestic crafts like cooking and weaving, and religious objects like figurines in these houses, indicating that a fair amount of social life happened within the household. As we'll talk about in the northern Ubaid episode, they appear to have shared less between households than other societies in the north, preferring to eat inside with their own extended family rather than anyone else's. So, they made their houses a certain way, so what? The shape of their domestic houses doesn't matter all that much to us on its own, but it does appear to be important that they also built their temples on a tripartite plan. 
often as a more elaborate version of the same basic layout. We'll talk much more about these temples in a future episode, but it's fair to say that this suggests that the people who built them may have conceived of these temples as households in some way. Maybe the real household of the chief's family, but more likely the household of a god worshipped by the entire community. These temples clearly played a religious role in the community. We'll look at burnt offerings in the temple at Eridu. But if they were anything like later Sumerian temples, a very small percentage of the population was ever allowed into the inner sanctuary. Stone macets, also found in these later temples, may have signified some kind of elite role for either the gods themselves or the priests worshipping them. It may have given the town's laypeople some peace of mind to know that the priests in there were presumably conducting the secret rituals necessary to the continued functioning of the cosmos, but the average person would have had a more tangible relationship with the temple. For example, as we'll talk about at Tel Abada, the community seems to have buried its dead infants at the temple rather than in their own houses. Likewise, the cemetery we'll look at at Eridu may have been related to the nearby temple. I've talked about public buildings as community grain storage centers, both as places for households to keep their individual stores of grain, like we talked about at Tel El Kerk, and as storehouses, which the entire community contributes to and keeps in common. We've talked about administrative technology at sites like Sabi Abyad, especially stamp seals and tokens, physical objects which stood in for people and the goods they exchanged. These can facilitate exchange without a central authority to oversee it, but if such an authority exists, it can use these words to administer a larger economy than one relying on individual memory and word of mouth alone. Presumably, the religious authority I mentioned helped persuade people to entrust their economic well-being to the temple administration. We'll talk more about this in a future episode. So let's finish up today by looking at Eridu, known to the Sumerians as the first and oldest city. We're in the far south of the southern delta, 24 kilometers south-southwest of Ur, bordering the Arabian desert to the south and west. Today, we'll cover the 5000s BCE, or levels 19 through 12 at the site of Tel Abu Sharain, or Eridu. In earlier decades, the Ubaid I period was known as the Eridu period, after the pottery found here between about 5900 and 5200 BCE. Next episode, we'll cover the beginning of its golden age, when the city would grow to an area of 12 hectares, with a population in the low thousands. Eridu is located in a large geographical depression running northwest-southeast. To the east, the Al-Hazim range, running the same direction, separates it from the rest of the Delta Plain. To the west, like I said, rises the Arabian Plateau, constant source of sand blowing eastwards into Eridu itself. Downriver of Eridu, to the south and southeast, the land slopes down sharply to a maximum depth of 9 meters below modern sea level. This is left over from valleys carved into the ground thousands of years ago before the gulf filled with seawater. It's not clear how much of this depression was underwater when sea levels peaked during the Ubaid period. In any case, it's likely that the Euphrates contributed much more water than rising tides did, enabling agriculture in the area. The foundation at Eridu itself is made of consolidated dune sand from the nearby desert. During the Ubaid, it sat on the levee slope of a branch of the Euphrates, surrounded on both sides by marshy wetlands, with access to nearby lakes, brackish marshes, and the Persian Gulf beyond them. Especially during this period of high groundwater precipitated by rising sea levels, the people of Eridu depended on the reservoir of fresh water just two meters below the surface. Especially if tides brought seawater upriver into the marshes near the city, this underground fresh water would have made habitation possible. The Sumerians worshipped this groundwater as a mythical cosmic force, which they called the Abzu. Speaking of which, as we'll talk about, each Sumerian city was centered on the temple to that city's patron god. The patron god of Eridu, and of the Abzu beneath it, was Enki, also known by the name Nudimud and his Akkadian name Ea. He plays a central role in most Mesopotamian creation narratives, including saving humans in the flood story by telling one man to build a giant boat. The temple we'll look at in this episode, and the next, was very likely a temple to Enki, or an earlier version of a similar god. I mentioned that Eridu was considered the first city created in these mythological narratives. For example, a version of the Babylonian creation epic from Sippar reads, A reed had not come forth. A tree had not been created. A house had not been made. All lands were sea. Then Eridu was made. Versions of the Sumerian king list written in the early 2nd millennium BCE place two kings of Eridu at the beginning of human history. Quote, After the kingship had descended from heaven, the kingship was in Eridu. In Eridu, Alulim became king. 
He ruled for 28,800 years. Alangar ruled for 36,000 years. Two kings, they ruled for 64,800 years. Then Eridu fell, and the kingship was taken to Bad Tabira. End quote. Needless to say, we can't take this combination of historical and legendary elements at face value, but it's notable that this tradition agrees with the later creation epic. The name Eridu is written in cuneiform, with the sign for a palm tree, which has been translated as great or prince, but it's not clear exactly where the name Eridu originated. If it came from a Semitic language like Akkadian, it's likely a word meaning low or the low city, referring to the depression where it sits. On the other hand, the Sumerians parsed the name as Eri Dug, or beautiful city. Whoever named it first, the original inhabitants of Eridu likely chose the spot to control the flow of water down the levee slope and started by building temporary reed houses. They would have foraged from a wide range of freshwater and marshland habitats, getting most of their protein from fish and other aquatic life, as attested by clay, net weights, and remains of reed boats. They also grew grain, but they appear to have ground their teeth down to the gums by grinding gravel into their flour. Accidentally, of course. Our earliest evidence of occupation comes from level 19, that is the 19th layer beneath the surface, from the mid-5000s BCE. Like I said, earlier generations of archaeologists called the Ubaid One style of pottery Eridu ware. Out of 10 types of pottery known from this period, seven were already present in this earliest occupation level. That's level 19. The earliest extant construction appears on level 18, Flimsy walls built of mud bricks tempered with straw, only as wide as the short side of a brick, or about 25 centimeters. These may have been built as retaining walls to hold back dirt, rather than as parts of a building. Directly above this, in level 17, we see our earliest recognizable building. A small room, 2.8 meters square, or about 85 square feet on the inside. In the center was a small, square, mud brick altar, about 20 centimeters tall, built of the same kind of mud bricks as the walls, which were also only a brick's width wide and unplastered. Near the corner of this building was an oven or kiln, 1.3 meters in diameter, in an area covered in ashes. Eventually, this building fell apart and was rebuilt on the same spot on a slightly more sophisticated plan. This building is called Temple 16. The walls were still only one brick thick, but the bricks were tempered better this time, and the inner chamber was now plastered on the inside. This chamber, which you could probably call a sanctuary or the central room of a temple, was rectangular, 2.1 by 3.1 meters on the inside, or about 70 square feet, even smaller than its predecessor. Like I said, it's likely that only a few people were ever allowed in this room, Six feet by ten feet is about the size of a private house's bathroom, and as we'll see, it wasn't empty, making it even harder to maneuver around in. Another small mud brick altar sat in a recess in the northwest wall, and an offering table, burnt and covered with ash, sat in the center of the sanctuary. Another altar sat by a doorway into the sanctuary, nearby lots of painted pottery, and another circular kiln, similar to the earlier one. This temple produced a bottom half of a female figurine, partially painted with a thick black line, and filled in by wavy vertical lines. This decoration, which appears on other figurines, has been interpreted as a representation of a striped dress. This figurine may have been broken accidentally, but as we saw at Sabi Abyad, the breaking of figurines may have served a practical or symbolic purpose, possibly related to record-keeping. Several other figurines at Eridu are broken in similar ways, often with only one half surviving. Like I said, archaeologists called this level Temple 16, assuming a religious purpose for this building, partially based on the burnt offerings at the offering table, partially based on the later temples built on the same spot. However, as we'll discuss, the spot was abandoned for a period before it was reoccupied by these later temples. Two features of these later buildings identify them as sites of religious ritual, an altar on the central axis of the sanctuary chamber, often emphasized by the room's internal architecture, and a freestanding structure, or offering table, used in some kind of burning ritual. Both features appear in Temple 16. The first altar I mentioned is emphasized by a deep recess in the wall, and the offering table shows clear signs of religious sacrifice. This temple's replacement, Temple 15, was made of unusual mud bricks made by hand without molds. They're indented on the top with a row of five holes, apparently made with the knuckles of the right hand, likely to give the mortar something to hold on to. This new temple was rectangular, about 7.3 by 8.4 meters, or about 660 square feet. The northeast and southwest walls were two layers of brick thick now, rather than just one, but since they hadn't come up with a way to bond these layers to each other, they peeled apart over time. 
They built another version of the same circular kiln, now outside the building, to the northeast. This installation stayed in more or less the same place relative to the building since level 18, indicating the kind of ritual conservatism which would come to characterize these temples. Eventually, Temple 15 was leveled and its ruins were filled in, presumably to build a new temple on top, which would make it the first known temple platform. But no such temple survives. This level 14 produced the top half of a female figurine in the Ophidian style we'll talk about next time. Her hands and legs were lost, but she was likely crossing her hands at her waist, like most figurines. Two lines around her neck and dots on her belly might indicate ornaments, jewelry, or tattoos. Also, spindle whorls found at this level testify to textile production. We have no temple from levels 13 or 12. If they did have a temple, they abandoned the site and built one somewhere else, possibly a bit to the northwest. This coincides with a change in pottery styles, which may suggest some amount of migration or shifting trade routes. Level 12 produced another bottom half of a female figurine, also painted with an apparent striped dress. Again, the breaking in half may have either a practical or symbolic meaning. The end of level 12 takes us up to the late 5000s BCE or so. We'll continue with Eridu's story next episode. So let's return to the debate between bird and fish. So previously, fish threatened to hand bird back its haughtiness. Now, fish escalates to fight, not being content to just argue anymore. Thereupon, fish conceived a plot against bird. Silently, furtively, it slithered alongside. When bird rose up from her nest to fetch food for her young, fish searched for the most discreet of silent places. It destroyed her well-built house and tore down her storeroom. It smashed the egg she had laid and threw them into the sea. Thus, fish struck at bird and then fled into the waters. Then bird came, lion-faced and with an eagle's talons, flapping its wings towards its nest. It stopped in mid-flight. Like a hurricane whirling in the midst of heaven, it circled in the sky. Bird, looking about for its nest, spread wide its limbs. It trampled over the broad plain after its well-built nest of brushwood. Its voice shrieked into the interior of heaven. Bird sought for fish, searching the marshes. Bird peered into the deep water for fish, watching closely. Extending its claws, it snatched from the water fish's tiny fish spawn, gathering them all together and piling them up in a heap. Thus, Bird took his revenge. I should mention, piling them up in a heap is reminiscent of Ninurta in episode two, and elsewhere we will see that defeating an enemy and creating stabilization both use a lot of making piles of stuff. Sorry, my brain is still like ruminating on the piling up into a heap and why that'd be interesting. I don't know, like I guess showing the way that like all of them are right here and I can take them all out in one. Well, and it's storing grain. So, you know, bird is making a pile of fish's eggs as food, just the same way that humans store grain in a central location. Yeah, I guess when things are all in one place, you can either create or destroy. Again, bird replied to fish. You utter fool, dolt, muddle-headed fish. The mouths of those who struggle the key never get enough to eat, and their hunger lasts all day. Swine, rascal, gorging yourself upon your own excrement. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you freak. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Swine, rascal, gorging yourself upon your own excrement, you freak. Fish, you kindled fire against me. You planted henbane. In your stupidity, you caused devastation. You have spattered your hands with blood. Your arrogant heart will destroy itself by its own deeds. But I am bird, flying in the heavens and walking on the earth. Wherever I travel to, I am there for the joy of the great princes. I am a first-class seed, and my young are first-born young. How can you not recognize my preeminence? Bow your neck to the ground. Then fish shouted at bird, eyeing it angrily. Do not puff yourself up from your lying mouth. Our judge shall take this up. Let us take our case to Enki, our judge and adjudicator. So they go to the king to decide. Deciding lawsuits would be the archetypal role of a king, and this debate is described as a lawsuit, paralleling the much later Oresteia, in which a cycle of generational violence is broken when Athena presides over a court of law. 
Anyway, as I mentioned, this text was written in the court of King Shulgi of Ur. So here he is ruling in the name of Enki, patron god of Eridu. Enki is the god of... Freshwater. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm, I wonder if this would affect the ruling, though. And so, with the two of them jostling and continuing the evil quarrel in order to establish the one over the other, their grandness and preeminence, the litigation was registered within Eridu, and they put forward their argumentation, thrashing about amid roaring like that of a bull. They requested a verdict from King Shulgi, son of Enlil. So Bird addresses the king and describes Fish's crime. The rest of the text is damaged, and we have some parts missing, but Bird says, You, lord of true speech, pay attention to my words. I had laid eggs there. He destroyed my house and tore down my storeroom. He smashed my eggs and threw them into the sea. Examine what I have said. Return a verdict in my favor. She prostrated herself to the ground. So King Shulgi answers. He starts by complaining about the squabbling commoners, and then he renders a verdict. So the Akur is a temple complex. Akur is Sumerian for House of the Mountain. And when he references the Anuna gods, he's referencing the greater gods of heaven. So Shulgi replies, For how long are you going to persist in quarreling? I shall instruct you in the divine rules and just ordinances of our dwelling place. Like Enki, king of the Abzu, I am successful in finding solutions and am wise in words. To strut about in the Akur is a glory for bird, as its singing is sweet. At Enlil's holy table, it shall utter its cries in the temple of the great gods. The Anuna gods rejoice at its voice. It is suitable for banquets in the great dining hall of the gods. It provides good cheer in the king's palace, with head high at the table of Shulgi, son of Enlil. Because Bird was victorious over Fish in the dispute between Fish and Bird, Father Enki be praised. Mm-hmm.